Hi, I'm Chris Giuseppe from WhatCopsWatch.com, and you're listening to the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Two Guys Talking is an internet radio show podcast, providing you with complete, detailed, and always educational perspectives when it comes to television, feature films, DVDs, Blu-rays, and the hottest in online entertainment. This week, it's Two Guys Talking... Star Trek 2009, a J.J. Abrams film. It's the franchise that's ignited millions of generations, friendships, and causes. Back in the 1960s, three characters were the focal point of Adventures 2 and Beyond the Stars. Now, in 2009, a new generation of characters, ideas, and stories is ignited by three reviewers from a more recent time. It's time for the Two Guys Talking feature film review podcast of J.J. Abrams' Star Trek, detailing the new adventures of old friends through a new looking glass here on the Two Guys Talking podcast network. Greetings, everyone. I'm Mike Wilkerson, one of your hosts. I'm Tony Lavasco, your other host. And I'm Paul Spataro, your third host. Paul, welcome so much. Paul is a longtime listener. I had talked to him. He's also one of the winners of our Patrick Swayze giftaways. And we got to talking about our upcoming podcast series. And he said that he was a Star Trek fan. So I thought I'd ask him on. Again, thanks for coming on, Paul. Oh, thank you for having me. This is a movie. Uh, Paul, I'm assuming you've seen it recently. When did you see it? I went to see it Thursday night in one of the advanced previews. <laughs> well, what time did you see your advanced preview? Uh, it wasn't too bad. 9.45 it started. 9.45. Tony and I went to the 7 o'clock show on the Thursday evening. This is actually one of those weird calls of the audience early. How many of you either knew or didn't know about the advanced previews on a Thursday when a movie this huge opens? I'm trying to remember the, the previous film that opened not only on a Thursday, but at 7 p.m., I was absolutely flabbergasted that Tony and I could actually just go and buy tickets and get in there. There was nobody there. I, I was shocked by the same thing. I had been at the theater three days earlier to take my son to see Wolverine. Oh, yeah. We saw a sign-up that said that it was going to open, so me and my buddy went. Out of the whole theater, I would say maybe there were 25 people in there. Well, what, what struck me as very <laughs> odd was I just kind of assumed, oh, it's the local theater. They may have some special deal, and so they can do it the day early. No, apparently they did that it was all nationwide. Over the place. Yeah, it, it's I also, amazing. I also read that there was a focal point in, inside the heartland of America where there were more theaters showing it inside of the heartland than e on either of the coasts. I was absolutely floored by that. That's amazing to me. An astounding series of openings across the nation. And again, let us know what you think by accessing our website at twoguystalking.com. That's the number twoguystalking.com. And let us know where you saw it, but more importantly, when you saw the film. And so let's get into our former review of J.J. Abrams' Star Trek 2009. Sponsored by Sprint's Relay Missouri. Acoustica's mixed craft recording software and ability interpreter. Two guys talking. The Hype. Paul, when did you first hear about this film? You know, I don't even remember exactly when I heard about it. Long before anything was confirmed that J.J. Abrams was in the running to reboot Star Trek. To be honest with you, initially I was very skeptical. I didn't yeah. uh, hold out much hope for it being good. 
Yeah, I, I have to join you in that seat. After being uh, an organized fandom participant in Star Trek in the world's largest Star Trek fan club, Starfleet International, I too was very soured by the thought that someone else was picking up the mantle and providing us something new. What I began to learn, though, after learning more about J.J. Abrams, because I, I have to tell you guys both, I've never been a real J.J. Abrams fan. I didn't follow Alias. Cloverfield really turned me off. Much of the other stuff that I've heard that he's done has sparked some interest, but I am not in general a uh, bow down and kiss the feet of J.J. Abrams. So, again, I was absolutely scared to death. Uh, I'd heard about this film, oh man, it's got to have been mid-2007, maybe. Mm. Yeah, it was a long time ago. Yeah. And, and again, it was right after they'd made the announcement that he was going to take over. And at that time, I mean, I'd watched Lost. I really did enjoy Lost. Yeah. Uh, down the road, when I saw Cloverfield, I did not enjoy Cloverfield. Yeah, yeah. And my, my whole thought was, is this going to be a Lost or is this going to be a Cloverfield? Yeah. And man, toss up there. Well, so. Something else that we were talking about, and I th- oh, it was right after the movie, we after we went and saw Star Trek 2009, we had asked, okay, when we went to see Cloverfield, they were announcing that Star Trek was going to be put back a year, but it actually turned into 18 months. So what in the hell did this look like 18 months ago? that they were even remotely thinking that it was going to be ready to go. And then they decided to not let it go and push it back a year. When I heard that they were pushing it back 18 months, I thought that was like the, the death knell. Kiss of death, I yes. I totally join you in that. Total total garbage. Yeah. And I do disagree with you a little bit on Cloverfield. We had been discussing this the other day. Uh, I thought Cloverfield was not a good movie. Yeah. But I thought it was a real good concept for a movie. I just didn't like the way it ultimately was executed. Yeah, and I'll join I, you I in did, that. I did give him some credit for coming up with a good idea. And I was hopeful from that. You know, the whole movie made you dizzy and uh, you know, made you start feeling nauseous just from the camera movement. It definitely didn't fill me with confidence. Yeah, the only thing that made me more nauseous than the movement inside of that movie was that I actually paid 10 bucks to see it. That's what made me nauseous. I, I, I really did not, not like Cloverfield. And again, not having been a J.J. Abrams fan, knowing nothing in general about him specifically, I was very scared when this film came out. And as much as uh, I love Lost, and I really am uh, a big fan of that show, I've always heard that it was Damon Lindelof and Carlton Cuse that were the main uh, brains behind that show. So I didn't really know what J.J. Abrams actually had to do with it. Well, and if I'm not mistaken, uh, what's his name? Damon is actually was one of the producers on Star Trek as well, which I guess we didn't know that way back when. Interesting. But that, yeah, yeah he, he brought two of his people along from Lost uh, directly with this movie. So that, yeah, there's but, definitely a lot of feeling in there that is probably, like you said, probably re- relevant to that. Yeah, and that's going to be our second strange call here inside of a feature film review that we don't usually ask for fan input. But what do you know of the 18-month question mark? What in the hell happened between the time that Cloverfield was aired and the actual release of Star Trek 2009 by J.J. Abrams? Let us know what you think by, again, accessing our website at twoguystalking.com. That's the number two, guystalking.com. Two Guys Talking. The Money. Something I really love about movies, especially as we get further and further into the future, is going and looking at the box office numbers for movies like this one. Any idea what this garnered in general, Paul? No, I I hadn't heard any box office uh, report on it. I'm assuming it did very well, but I don't have any actual numbers on it. Yeah, it did incredibly well. Tony, any idea? I'm going to guess it's $93,212,000. Oh, yeah, you closed the browser window. Uh, (laughs) Obviously, it did incredibly well, not to spoil your punchline there. No, it's okay. uh, I remember reading on Wikipedia that I think the, the previous record for a Star Trek film was like 140 million gross, and we're three fourths of the way there yeah. on opening weekend. Just uh, <laughs> absolutely amazing corn combines of cash. 
is what I've used for all the big giant films that we review. This one is just Megatron of Corn Combines. $93,212,090. Of course, the $90 is probably Paul, Paul's family, Tony and I going to the the uh, going to the theater at least once. I hadn't heard anything, so I'm asking a question I don't know the answer to. But yeah. do, do we know how much it costs to produce the film? We don't. I would imagine it's, you know, in the... Hundred hundred and ten million dollar realm. So in less than five days, it's already made its money back, which instantly ding 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 for sequel. I know that all of the characters have signed on for three films. So I, I again, I, I don't want to give away the rest of our review, but I'm very very interested to see what happens in the subsequent films. Two guys talking. The good. Inside of each and every feature film, there are always things that are good. Let's start talking about the good things inside of Star Trek 2009 by J.J. Abrams. The characters. We're going to do a quick rundown of the characters to see what they got right and see if they got anything wrong in regard to any of The first one we're going to start off with is, of course, Kirk. The bar was held really, really high for this one. I think of the people you can imagine that represent the Star Trek mythos, especially classic Star Trek. William Shatner as Captain Kirk provides you a very, very high bar. Paul, what'd you think of Captain Kirk here in J.J. Abrams' Star Trek 2009? I, I thought he was terrific. What I really loved about it was he totally caught the character, like the essence of the, of the personality. He brought it all out. Yeah. But he never fell into doing a William Shatner imitation. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the only thing it was at the very end, he let out like a staccato command to somebody on the ship, which I think was totally intentional, almost for comic relief. But he never did that. He never fell into an imitation. And I thought that was going to be key because I was really yeah. afraid he would. There's a segment here inside of the Kobayashi Maru scenario that happens that <laughs> I don't know what it is. It might just be because of what I know of Star Trek and my favorite movie starts, of course, with the Kobayashi Maru scenario. I just had the largest smile on my face during that entire segment. And it wasn't just because it was the Kobayashi Maru. It wasn't because it was just Jim Kirk. It wasn't even because you could see Spock, who was the guy that wrote the program. It was because of the balls that Chris Pine displayed here that put William Shatner's Captain Kirk to shame. It was an outstanding representation that stood on its own, didn't jump top of William Shatner's shoulders, and gave you the absolute essence of what is supposed to be Jim Kirk. I loved it. My, my thought on Chris Pine in general is, is very... I, I'm kind of surprised by my own reaction. On one hand, he did a great job. I, I think the character that he portrayed was true to the same type of character that we've seen yeah, yeah. in Captain Kirk previously. Mm -hmm. uh, very entertaining. I, I didn't see any parts where I thought he was weak. Uh, like some of the other characters that I saw, there was a few scenes that, okay, that just doesn't quite fit. Didn't get that with him. On the other hand, he was really the only character who wasn't in trying to imitate the original portrayal. All the other actors that played the, 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 the original series characters that we see here, pretty much in one way or another, were emulating the original actors. Whereas Chris Pine made basically no attempt to emulate Shatner. Most likely, of course, because it would have been probably over the top and it, it would be just so hard to do a Shatner Jim Kirk and not have it be silly yeah, it could I be done but it would be incredibly tough Shatner is the one character that you couldn't imitate without it being ridiculous yeah. but he else at least you could try and do a little bit of them I mean you, you, they couldn't go over the top with it even though and I'm sure we'll get to bones but even though he did a little bit of that Spock I think if I had to pick a character 
that runs throughout Star Trek and actually, I think, pictorially, uh, via imagery, depicts Star Trek, I'd have to go with Spock. Oh, yeah. And such a tall order filled by an even taller man, Zach Kinto, inside of this film, spectacular. And that he was able to grasp not just, I'm now going to act like a young Leonard Nimoy slash Spock, I'm actually going to throw my own representation on top of it. The entire... I'm half human and I lose my temper because I really lose my temper because I'm half human. That being pulled off could have, again, been so camp. And it wasn't. And you have to really give it to Zach Quinto. Yeah, I didn't care for that particular plot line just because I I, loved it. I like the totally Vulcan Spock personally. However, it, it wasn't distracting. Like right. you said, it could have easily been, all right, that's, I'm it, that's done, that ruins the movie. And it wasn't at all. Right. It didn't even really ruin the scene, which... On paper, it really should have because I didn't like what I, I didn't like the actual dialogue at all. But the portrayal was so solid, yeah. I kind of forgot that I didn't like it. So he did a great job. I think of all the characters uh, that were recast here, I, I gotta say he he was the, probably my favorite, even probably more so than Kirk at this point. That that scene when uh, when Kirk basically goads him into losing his temper, I can't remember off the top of my head which episode it was, but there was an episode in the original series that had a similar scene to it. If I'm remembering right, it's the one where there was some spores that made him... Uh, spores. Kind of forget what... Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly it. The sound like Is that, that the one where Kirk uh, has with, to die so that Spock thinks he killed him and that whole deal? No, it was, that was a muck time. Back to Vulcan. Oh, okay. yeah, this is one where, where they, they land on a planet and there's some sort of spores that take over spores. their minds. He ends up like settling down and Kirk has to basically snap out of it so he does so by goading him on until he loses his temper yeah yeah well it wasn't with the uh like the the flowers shoot things at them yes and they get infected yeah i can't remember the name of it (laughs) with the styrofoam flowers i do remember that now (laughs) (laughs) that'll be our weird third call to people let us know what episode that was clearly we're not geek enough to remember no i am geek enough you are geek enough that's what I said. This oh. side of paradise. Oh, there's okay. Well, good. See, I I declare a not need for that for that audience call. <laughs> McCoy. Oh, <laughs> wonderful representation by Carl Urban, and again, in a character that could have been so campy and over the top, he absolutely just swish this character totally. Uh, I, I I agree with that 100. percent Dialogue wise, I, I gotta say he probably had the hardest time of all the, the new actors with the lines he was given because he had so many of the. And now you're going to say a line that's basically the same thing that <laughs> we saw in the original series. Go. I mean, there's a couple times where you could almost tell he had to like try it ten different times before he got it right, just so it didn't sound silly. I mean, you know, he said basically everything other than he's dead, Jim. <laughs> Every classic McCoy line was showcased in this movie. And man, that's a minefield for an actor. So he, he did a great job by, you know, navigating through that well. So I had to hand it to him. He's, he's the one character that I thought did an out and out imitation of the actor who portrayed the character before. Yeah, DeForest Kelly, yeah. He did it so well that it didn't, you know, it still didn't feel like he was doing an imitation. It felt like he was the same character. Uh, yeah, I'll agree with that. I, I just thought it was terrific. I thought he, he was one of the best cast uh, actors in the, in the movie. Yeah. And I know everyone said that he was an actor from Lord of the Rings, yeah. and I can't picture him, but, you know, it's, the uniforms and the costumes are so different that I could, uh, I guess it's hard to put them together. Yeah, he was one of the Rohirrim. He was, uh, the, remember, the, remember the king that was enchanted, and then uh, Gandalf and company are able to unenchant him? And Tony's, uh, Tony's throwing a steel shaft through his head because he hasn't seen the movies yet, believe it or not. 
Uh, Tony, if you have an extra 11 hours to kill, you can get the extended version. <laughs> <laughs> well, any, in any case, Carl Urban did an outstanding job here. What I really enjoyed about his introduction, literally, is his introduction. I love the pacing of this movie in general. We'll get to that more when we talk about the positives. But the pacing of him meeting both Spock and Bo- and Bones here, just wonderfully choreographed. The, again, the pacing was stellar. I think also age-wise, he, he was pretty much the only choice that they had made, I think, of the new actors that really was right about the same difference in age between Kirk yeah, and McCoy uh, as Shatner and DeForest Kelly. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because so many of the other characters here we've seen are just so much younger yeah. that if you were then going to age them out into, okay, and now it's the Star Trek The Motion Picture Time chronology, well, they, they just would be totally wrong as far as what they'd look like when they're older. I, I think they nailed the, the choice as far as McCoy in that, you know, just a little bit older, but not, and now he's 50 years older, it's, you know, 15 years or whatever. Yeah, I think if you were going to try and match the age differences, uh, you'd have, you know, Kirk, I guess, is what, probably about 25 in the movie? Yeah, and, uh, yeah that's fair. So Pavel Chekhov would probably have to be like 10. <laughs> right. <laughs> And you never know, maybe he was. Who knows what the Russians were feeding them down on the planet in that time, so... He did mention in the movie that he was 17. Right. Ahura. Boy, smoking hot. Very nicely chosen, an incredibly intelligent woman. Having her be useful... Is yeah is good because really uh, the character was useful in the mo- the movies, but in the original series she pretty much tagged along. Yeah, and, the, and I, actually she, seeing her being useful again. Yeah, I, I like that. She was in the original series. She was definitely the colloquial. Have you ever seen the movie Galaxy Quest? Yeah, yeah. The Sigourney Weaver character in that is the communications officer. Yeah. And she repeats whatever they say to her. And then there's a scene in there where they say, I heard what they said. You don't have to repeat it. And she yells back, I have one job and I'm going to do it. <laughs> and that's basically what uh, yeah. was on the yeah. TV yeah. show. She yeah. just repeat whatever was said. Yeah. She's also got a, a soft spot in my heart, not again because of her looks, but because she's essentially an interpreter and I'm an ex-interpreter. So thumbs up for Uhura, totally. Sulu. Tony, got your... Fencing foil <laughs> handy? Uh, you know, I, I'm so mixed on Sulu in this movie. On one hand, I'm glad to see him doing something moderately useful and not basically being there. Why was Sulu there in the original series? He was very cool in the movies. He but, was the helmsman, and that right, was kind of it. But other than like, all right, laying in the course, sir, uh, that's about all he did. And sword fighting. <laughs> and sword fighting. Again, it, he basically drove the ship. Right. But, it was his job. I don't know. I, and I, 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 one of the things again that you know, I, I'm glad the movie in general took the characters, and I really think they they modeled the characters on what we saw in the other Star Trek original cast motion pictures more so than they took it from the original series, which I think is a hundred times better way to go. Yeah, I agree because with all that. the characters were so much more fleshed out by that point that you know, if they had done the one dimensional Sulu that presses go on the ship, that would have been it would have been horrible, and I'm glad they didn't do it. One in this one instead of pressing go, he actually the, grabs the <laughs> throttle. Yeah. Of the sword fighting scene, that he was kind of one-dimensional. Yeah, I uh, agree. The sword fighting scene, I thought, was a great flashback to the whole uh, Sulu, you know, with the sword on the original Enterprise, and you know, it was a terrific action scene in general. But other than that, and when he uh, wasn't handling the ship correctly when they first pulled out <laughs> of uh, port, he really didn't do anything. Well, most of the characters didn't. I mean, this is the first film of what is likely a trilogy, so I, we couldn't expect all the main cast members to have major playing parts in the plot, so I can forgive that. I kind of think that perhaps the only one crack student 
that wasn't on the Enterprise is Sulu. Sulu just happened to be on the Enterprise and he was driving the ship, just like Paul said. And that he has his advanced close quarters combat training, i.e. fencing, is kind of a... It, it serves as a nod, a tip of the hat to the one episode that everyone will remember Sulu from, from the original series, but also provides you with some comic relief and that he's the guy that pushes the go button, essentially, and the ship doesn't go because, oops, I forgot the safety. Chekhov. Tony, what'd you think of Chekhov in this one? You know, I he had so little screen time that I, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt that maybe he's going to be better in the next <laughs> film, but his accent was just what? so unbelievably distracting. <laughs> it, it, it didn't... It, 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 it wasn't... In the original series, it was basically an actor trying to do a Russian accent. This was an actor trying to imitate an actor doing a Russian accent. Yeah. And just too much was lost in that translation. It, beca- it, it became very, I don't want to say comical, but it, it can't be is a good word yeah. for that. In addition to being that, that camp and exactly what you said, I was also waiting for him to actually enter puberty. He was too young as well. He's the actor in the new Terminator movie who's going to play Kyle Reese. You have got to be. Heard that. There's no way. Really? I, I, I heard it. I didn't read it anywhere. I don't know if it's fact, but I did hear that. Wow. Wow. Well, maybe he'll find some newfound respect for me after we see him as one of my favorite all-time theatrical feature film characters. I, I just I thought of the of the characters portrayed during this entire series, I thought this was the weakest. He was definitely the whiz kid Doogie Hauser guy. I got that much. He, he, but the, the, again, to get over the same speed bump that Tony was trying to get through, the accent was just way too incredibly yeah. thick it was wesley crusher from the first season of next generation <laughs> with a bad accent <laughs> so you know what again it, he had so little screen time we're probably being unfair he had like 15 lines so maybe he'll do better next time you know we'll see well, I, I think he would have been the easiest one if they had to cut somebody they could have just cut him right out of the script you wouldn't have even noticed it it would have been seamless and then he can appear in the second film like he appeared in the second season yeah. of the original star trek <laughs> actually that's a good point <laughs> but according to khan he was there in the first season even though we never saw him that's right in the bathroom i never forget to phase <laughs> scotty i really liked scotty in this i know that he served as only kind of a footnote insert hilarity here junction point but I, I really think they're going to build him well and having seen jimmy doing so many times in person i i just really see him blossoming out of what they started here in this incarnation i you know i i was ready to pick apart scotty in general my, my first uh, thought is you know he did a great job i totally forgot the actor playing it was basically I mean, he's more, more known for more of his comedic roles obviously yeah I totally forgot that he did an excellent job in that regard. Looking back, I'm thinking that's really nothing like the original Scotty because the original Scotty was much more serious. And yeah. This is I'm doing yeah. my job and blah blah blah. This was the Scotty from the motion pictures, which again goes back to what I said before. And if that was what they're going after, I think they did nail it then. The original Scotty was more of a hard drinking, hard working man's man. Yeah. This Scotty was comic relief, so it, it was a change in the character. But I mean, the comic relief worked. He was very funny. It made the movie more enjoyable. Red shirts. Ha ha ha. They continue even into the 2009 incarnation by J.J. Abrams, and so apropos. The first notice, I think, here, of course, is Kirk being taken into custody by a couple of no-name, goony, thin, red-shirt guys that grab him and haul him off to where he's supposed to go. And then the one that really, really makes an impact known, quite literally, 
is the one that's on the skydiving team that's super gung ho. I, I just I really enjoyed the the depiction here again of the red shirts. Yeah, that that was great. The you know I can't wait to go kill me some bad guys, and then like a minute and a half later, he's basically on fire because he's an idiot and he totally misses the platform. That was great. I subtle. You know they they didn't literally emblazon him with a giant red shirt, but he had the red uniform. Yeah. It was incredibly obvious what they were doing. It was that was one of the highlights of those little itty bitty throwbacks. I liked that a lot. Unfortunately, I feel kind of uh, dopey on that one because I didn't see that coming. I saw I saw him all incredibly gung ho, ready to fight him. I think they even like made a point of saying, you know, is he here? Is he ready? Has he got the explosives? You know, like like he was going to be a major guy in this uh, offensive. And, and I fell for it hook, line, and sinker, and I didn't realize. I never noticed he was wearing a red shirt. Yeah, well, it, see, that that's the magic of this movie. We're going to talk about many magic moments inside of this film, but that's clearly one of them. Something that Tony and I take as some colloquial doom marker on this guy's future is something that Paul doesn't even notice, and Paul is a hardcore original Trek fan. And and so, again, it's it's one of, one of the little pieces of magic inside of the 2009 representation of Star Trek. Two guys talking. Initial entrance to the movie. Yeah, well, when the movie first opened up and basically the ship comes out at you and you're going back and forth between, I don't even remember the name of the starship that uh, was originally there, uh, but the, they were going through a series of really quick edits, yeah. you know, cutting from character to character, not giving you really an establishing shot, not giving you a chance to really take in the uh, size of the ship that was going after yeah, them. The majesty, and I yeah. thought this is going to be, you know, the MTV movie version of Star Trek where they're going to just cut back and forth and it's going to be so fast-paced that it's going to lose out that they're not going to actually bother to tell a story. And that was what I was afraid of when the movie first started. But they fell right into place and they didn't, they didn't let that happen at all. Yeah. They served the purpose with those quick edits by making Nero and his ship look that much more menacing. Yeah, not only did they make Nero's ship look menacing, they also gave you the frenetic pace. Again, to, to go back to pacing, the pace of this movie, especially when you start off, you're running 1,000 miles an hour right at the beginning. You have the quick cuts, you wonder if you're going to fall into Cloverfieldness, and you don't. And kind of the, the hallmark of everything inside of this new incarnation of the movie, I kind of encapsulate inside of the nurse that's helping out Mama Kirk. The nurse that's helping out Mama Kirk, she has these obviously digitally reshaped eyes, but it's unlike anything that we've ever seen inside of Star Trek. And I think that that is a great marker and indicator of what J.J. Abrams is about to provide during the entire movie. It's something that's, that sticks with me now even uh, more than 10 days after I've seen the film. That's the one thing I remember first going into the movie is that she looked totally different than anything I'd ever seen. It was nice to see them use CGI on the aliens instead of just putting a, a little plastic Mask. appliance on yeah. the ridge of their nose yeah. or, or, you know, string-shaped ears yeah. or a skull cap of some kind with ridges on it yeah. or a full face mask. They, you know, they, they just changed it almost subtly. I mean, it's pretty obvious that they changed it, but it, it, isn't, it doesn't come out and smack you in the face, and it's not right. the same thing they always did in the past. Yeah. The, the two big things I noticed from the beginning of this movie, uh, the number one is that we didn't have any traditional opening credits. We didn't have yeah. the, and now let's play some music and see all the actors' names for four minutes. It went yeah. right yeah. in from the logo, production company logo, to movie starts. I like that. I've always liked that style of having yeah, the credits at too. the end. It's too. just it's easier to get into things. The other thing was I really liked how they, they went out of their way to nail the architecture of the Kelvin and the, the uniforms that are after the 
Enterprise television show mm-hmm. time, mm-hmm. but before the original series, so what that might have looked like. The shuttlecraft is basically the original series shuttlecraft design with a few very, very minor, minor and subtle modifications. It was all very much true to the original canon, Oh, up until Nero does what he does, and then from then on they can do their creative and we're going to take it another direction. That little itty-bitty, and we're not going to mess with everything, they, they, they start the movie with let's be true to the original series. I think that, that little detail makes a huge difference, especially as I was getting into this movie being a little skeptical. Starting me off with that really helped, I think, in helping me accept the new story that they're going to tell us. Two guys talking. Vulcan bullies. Oh, this was spectacular. They get done showing you the tutorial pods that all the children are in learning things. A quick nod again to to the uh, end of Star Trek 3 slash beginning of Star Trek 4 where Spock is just learning at a geometric rate as are all these kids. And then they have the Vulcan bullies start picking on Spock who's half Vulcan Spock. It was just genius writing to bring that in because it's so nothing. But it adds so much flavor to, again, what I think was the focal character of this whole thing was Spock. I don't think that scene is meant to change the original at all. I think that's no, meant I don't think to be so something that would be in the original timeline. Yeah. Because there's nothing with the, the attack of Kirk's father's ship that would have impacted how Spock's childhood went. Right. I, 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 lo- I love the take. The, when the bullies walk up to him and go, look at his eyes. And it looked to me like they physically did something to the actors that were actually supposed to be Vulcans so that their eyes would look significantly different than what Spock's eyes looked like. I, I love that subtlety, the being able to call on things like that in a time of Spock's crisis. I love that. I love that a lot. That, that's something that they also always talked about in the movies and in the TV show about how Spock is half human and half Vulcan, yeah. but that he didn't truly belong with either, in either right. fully. Mm-hmm. And you always saw on the show how he didn't belong with the humans because he would embrace his Vulcan side, but you never truly understood how he didn't belong with the Vulcans until they showed this. Two guys talking. Mentioning the timeline change. Now, there was one voice that had started speaking more than a year ago about how this movie was going to be absolutely horrible, and his name was Tony Lovasco. And so the, the giant grin that appeared on Mike Wilkerson's face sitting next to Tony inside of this movie happened initially when Mama Kirk and Baby Kirk get away from the giant explosion and suddenly all time is changed. And it worked out being one of the best things I've seen in cinematic history ever. Yeah, I, I agree with that completely. I, I hate reboots in general. And not because they're bad movies, but just because if I'm a fan of the original I just want to see the original forever, and I don't want it to change, and that's just my personality. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, and re- reboots just mess with all of that. This is the first one I've seen, except for maybe Casino Royale, because James Bond has such loose chronology anyway, it's, you can make up reasons for why it still works chrono- chronologically. Uh, this is the first reboot I've seen where it, it really isn't a reboot. Pretty much everything we see in this movie and everything we will see, you could completely tie into the original true canon with this one little time travel plot that they give us in the first five minutes of the movie. And not only is that incredibly clever, but it serves both purposes. They can do whatever they want and change things if they'd like, but they're not going to change everything and they're still going to give you that satisfaction that, oh, you're... 
thirty some years of viewing isn't totally worthless. I just pretend like none of that ever happened. We're gonna, you know, Kirk's gonna be black now or whatever. They're not going into the totally new field. They're telling the same story just from a different perspective, and I like that. I would, I would agree that that reboots are not always good. In fact, you probably have five bad ones for every good one you have. But there, there's a pretty long list of good ones out there. I mean, Casino Royale you mentioned, I thought was great. You got uh, Batman Begins was excellent. The Fugitive. I mean, and uh, that's just off the top of my head. I'm sure there's a bunch of others out there that I could think of. Battlestar and Galactica. if I think about mm-hmm. Autumn, I I could think of plenty of plenty of them that were bad. Yeah. Yeah, this, this uh, it, it isn't an original thought because I heard it somewhere. I had heard when the trailer first came out that showed Kirk ride, driving the car off the, the uh, cliff that basically it was a 1960s car driving off the cliff and that that was J.J. Abrams' message to the audience that... The 1960s Star Trek, we just drove that off the cliff. Mm. The new Star Trek for 2009. Interesting. And expect it to be different. And I think he delivered on that. No, that's, that's very interesting. And again, I, uh, that story would fit the model perfectly. And again, I, I totally agree. Out with the old, went with that car, without question. And, and what was nice is that he kept what worked with the old. He didn't just eliminate it, like Tony was saying. He doesn't have to just change it for the sake of changing it. He was able to, you know, maintain the stuff that makes it work and it makes it all, you know, so it makes us all so fond of it. But get rid of the things that make it dated or the things that were kind of cheesy because of budget restraints or things like that. Two guys talking. Kobayashi Maru. Oh man. It, the, this entire film was essentially my smile test for two hours and nine minutes. Because if I wasn't just subtly grinning at the screen, I was then smiling at the screen and nodding my head throughout the entire film. This particular scene, the Kobayashi Maru, comes close to topping one of my favorite scenes ever in Star Trek chronology, the beginning of Star Trek II, Wrath of Khan, this comes very, very close to trumping that. That's how powerful this scene was. If it wasn't spread forth hard enough with young Kirk providing vibrato that I think will never be seen again, it it was then provided by the crunch of an apple. Yeah, that was amazing. I just absolutely, as soon as he reaches behind him and he goes, you know, kind of polishes on his shirt and then goes... Uh, we just, I absolutely grinned from ear to ear. It was awesome. I, I pointed that out to a friend of mine uh, earlier today, actually, who had said that he was really gr- glad that he watched Wrath of Khan for the first time two weeks ago <laughs> prior to seeing this movie just because there were so many references. And I said, well, did you notice the part with the apple? He goes, what do you mean? Well, the scene where Kirk in, in, in this new Star Trek is defeating the Kobayashi Maru by cheating, he, his mannerisms and everything down to eating the apple is basically the exact same as William Shatner telling the story of how he did it in Wrath of Khan, yeah. which, that was brilliant. I really love that. A- absolutely brilliant. And the, the only the only way it could get better is making Spock the architect of the simulation. Giant kudos. Love that. And that the initial pressure between those two, the buildup, was right there. I, it was already there because Jim Kirk's already the the outlander rebel but then you add on top of it that this simulation that can never be broken, that is the cornerstone of building Starfleet captains that, by the way, I, Spock, am in charge of. A little bit of nod to Spock's hubris. He trumps him and beats it. And so I, I love that. I love this scene. The other thing about that that I really liked was, you know, we, those of us who've seen The Wrath of Khan, which is 
most Star Trek fans, you know, we all, we all knew that he defeats it by cheating. So as you're watching it, you know this time he's going to defeat it because he's cheating. But I know I didn't expect him to be so arrogant as to not even try and hide it by sitting there eating an apple. Well, and, and true. Yeah, when he, when he tells the story in Khan... Not even pretending you know, he's, that he's working hard. Right, yeah. Uh, <laughs> when he tells the story in Khan, we really don't know, you know, how he got away with it, if it was he just cheated and no one found out or anything. And here we see he basically just literally looks there. up at the observation lounge, <laughs> gives a wink to the Admiral, and, oh, I'm cheating, you know. the apple. Right, yeah. that was great. It was awesome. Just perfect. Two guys talking. The costuming. Uh, again, another one of those things that could have been totally caricaturized inside of a new movie with new materials and new hot production designers. And they didn't do it. They gave us a great representation, but a completely different look with completely different textured materials that really carries us into a different new time but not necessarily new on the time spectrum just something new to look at i loved it well even as someone who is incredibly nitpicky in general with chronology and everything else if this hadn't been a new timeline if this had just been and now we're going to tell a story of when the original series characters were young if they had used those uniforms i wouldn't have had a problem with that no because uh, if nothing else wonderful. you can chalk that up to how many close-ups did we really have of the original uniforms anyway <laughs> you know with the horribly shot, fuzzy 1960s film. Uh, no offense to the original creators or anything, but it, it, it was close enough that even if it was going to be a purist and now we're going back in time and everything's the same, I still think it would have worked even at that. So that, that was one of the highlights of the movie for me was the uniforms. And the, and the original show, it, it, at least from the looks of it, it looks like they used some kind of like polyester shirts. And this, when they, I mean, they showed a close-up at some point. And you could see it's got almost like a mesh kind of quality to it, mm -hmm. and and it just makes more sense. I mean, realistically, they're not just sitting on the bridge of a Star Trek. These guys are doing physical work. Yeah, and they have something that that certainly fits that idea. You know, something that allows you to be active and to to physically lift things or move things or sword fight or whatever it is you have to do. Yeah. Plus, I've never really bought the whole concept of full-length, like, turtleneck-style undershirts underneath your <laughs> full-length, long sleeve wool, shirts, right? Wool shirt, right, yeah. Maybe it was chilly on a starship. Yeah. <laughs> well, they're out in space. Did you notice that they, that they played true to being out in space, too? When they had an explosion occur on the ship, you could hear it. When it cut to outside, it would be silent. Silent, right. And I, I really like the use, and we've talked about this time and time again inside of the feature film reviews, I always like the use of silence, and it's not used nearly enough in films. You'll also note that while there were blasts of music inside of this, I dare you to tell me what this new soundtrack is. And the reason is because it wasn't being played every single second of the film. Again, a totally outside-the-box call by J.J. Abrams. I didn't notice the soundtrack until they basically redid the original uh, theme song at the very end yeah. when the credits were rolling. Yeah, which uh, Tony I wonder, was... I wonder how many people hung out like I did while the credits were rolling to see if there was going to be some scene after they were over. Uh, I, I knew that there wasn't going to be. I hung out just to hear, just to hear that it. song. Yeah. Because, and I mentioned this to Mike as <laughs> they were rolling, that's the first time anywhere on the big screen we've heard the original Alexander Courage Star Trek theme song. Yeah. It's always been the revamped one from the motion picture that all yeah. the other movies have been based on. Yeah. I, I just, the nostalgia alone was worth that. That was awesome. Two guys talking. Enterprise, a true juggernaut. Oh, this was stellar. This is not your average captain's launch two torpedoes and see what happens, Enterprise. I love the full-on glory battle hound that this ship becomes. 
phasers all over the place, torpedoes firing off. The, the revamped torpedoes so that they're not the black cylindrical things. They actually look like a, like the um, the chambers inside a revolver. And then they're, they're putting in the big red things and then shutting the chamber. Like a flat cannon or a something. A flat right. cannon, yeah. Uh, all of that was just glorious. And to see it in play instantly was something really to marvel at. One of the things I liked about that was that it just, it never... Like, it never stood out as being a special effect. Right. It actually looked like what I would think something like that really should look like. And it's something we've kind of underplayed here as we've gotten half into the review. The, the, the ships. <laughs> Was there any CGI in this movie? Because the ships look glorious. Yeah, they looked like they built ships and then blew them up. <laughs> and that's... I, I've said stellar. that in almost every review we've done of any kind of science fiction or even action movie. The more we can build things and blow them up instead of hitting a button and having the computer do it and on a green screen, it's always better. Even back in the original Star Trek, with 1960s technology and almost no budget, it looked better with an actual prop <laughs> than some of the CG stuff we see today. Uh, I th it, what, if it was CG, CG was the best CG I've ever seen, because I couldn't tell. Well, it's definitely true with stunts. I mean, yeah. explosions, yeah. I agree with you totally. And then when you add it to stunts, when they CG stunts, and you can see that it's CG. It eliminates any feel that there's real danger to the person. Yeah. yeah. Well, but, but when you but when you know when you see there's a real you know when you can tell like in you know Raiders of the Lost Ark the original one when you can tell that it's really a stuntman doing that there, there is more of a sense of of true danger. Well, and like the good example is the the drill platform with Sulu and the sword fight scene. Stellar was yeah. Obviously, they didn't build a drill platform, <laughs> put it up you know two miles up, and oh, if you die, too bad for you. No, obviously not. But they did build the platform, yeah. even though it was obviously in yeah. front of a green screen. The stuff they were standing on was real. Yeah, yeah they yeah. could have easily done the Sin City approach where, and now the ground is also green screen, and it's all fake. And when old does have that later? And they didn't. Little stuff like that makes a huge difference because we're not looking at the sky; we're looking at Sulu and what he's walking on and his sword and that was an actual item and that does make a difference let's take a quick break here during the two guys talking feature film review of gg abrams star trek 2009 here on the two guys talking podcast network hi i'm paul spataro each year i walk in the lust garden foundation's pancreatic cancer walk this is a fundraiser that's run each year to raise money and awareness with regard to this terrible disease that takes lives very quickly and painfully. You've probably heard about people who've had this. Patrick Swayze is currently suffering from it, and several other famous people have had it. It's a disease that kills people very, very quickly. And for that reason, because there isn't a surviving group of cancer sufferers, it's kind of become an unknown disease. I do a cancer war every year since I lost my brother to this disease, and Mike and I have added a link onto his website for the fundraising cancer walk I'm going to do. I would appreciate it very much if everybody would go to that link and donate to this very worthwhile cause. Please check out the show notes for the two guys talking Star Trek review that I did with Mike and Tony. There will be a link there for the cancer walk that I'll be participating in, and I would love it if you could check it out and donate anything. No amount is too small. Be sure to check out the link to Paul's charity walk at twoguystalking.com. That's the number two guystalking.com This is Paul's Tree Service. A person is calling through Relay, Missouri. This is operator. Uh, thanks, but we're not interested. Who is that? Uh, just one of those annoying telemarketers. Wrong. You just hung up on a customer. One who wanted to spend money with your business. A customer who happens to be deaf, hard of hearing, or who has a speech disability. Calling you through Relay, Missouri. 
Relay Missouri is a free service that allows people who are deaf, hard of hearing, or who have a speech disability to communicate over the telephone with you and your business. Don't hang up. This could be new business. For more information on Relay Missouri, take a minute to log on to RelayMissouri.com and open the door to a whole new group of customers. Become part of a growing community that is silent but can speak volumes for your business. Relay Missouri brings the hearing and deaf, hard of hearing, and people with speech disabilities together at no charge with no sign-up and no monthly fee. Log on to RelayMissouri.com and find out how you can start communicating with these new customers today. Hi, this is Art Maines from ScammerCast.com, where we educate, inform, and protect our elders and those who care for them on the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Let me tell you of the Two Guys Talking Terminator podcast. Historians from England will say that I am a liar, but history is written by those who have hanged heroes. Join the noble duo as they dialogue the weekly adventures of Sarah and John Connor as they fight to avoid the inevitable Judgment Day and defeat the evil hordes from Skynet. It's legend, it's random, and it's only from Two Guys Talking. Wouldn't it be cool if your advertising could last forever? It can, with perpetual advertising. Here's how it works. Magazine, radio, and television ads are efforts that people might see or hear once, and then they're lost forever. Perpetual advertising provides you with the chance for repeat exposure and replayability weeks, months, even years after it's originally inserted inside a podcast. So even if your advertising is included in a podcast years ago, those efforts are still impactful, providing you with true return on investment. Real impact. Thanks to perpetual advertising. Are you ready to change the way you and your company or organization advertises? Find out more and launch a unique perpetual advertising effort now by visiting twoguystalking.com forward slash sponsors. Everyone, welcome back to the Two Guys Talking feature film review of Star Trek 2009 by J.J. Abrams. Two Guys Talking. Using an old character, but with purpose. Everyone knows that Spock could have been a totally paper wave to the original series. And by that you mean Leonard Nimoy Spock. Right. Right. And he was absolutely not that. That they could take a classic character as well as a classic actor. There, there are a few people ever that have been around like Leonard Nimoy. And I'm so incredibly proud that we still have him to throw through this movie with such a presence on screen as a character. It's just a stellar representation. Yeah, I've got to agree. Well, when I first heard this movie was going to happen and that Leonard Nimoy was going to be in it, my first thought, and, and really up until maybe about four months ago when I first started hearing about the plot, I thought this was going to be old Leonard Nimoy is talking to his buddy maybe at Kirk's funeral or, or something, you know, some important event in the future, quote-unquote. And, you know, telling the story about how, you know, that Kirk, he was a great guy. And I remember when, and then it fades into the, right, you know, the screen gets fuzzy and now we have the flashback movie where everything, basically it's just, you know, he's talking about stuff that happened. They could have done that. Obviously, they went a totally different route, which I do like. It was even worse when I heard they're going to do the reboot effectively and Nimoy's involved. Well, how are they going to do that and not have it be silly? Is it going to be randomly Nimoy shows up to save the day from the future? Is it going to be... This was subtle. 
It was not a lot of screen time, but it made perfect sense for the plot. It, Nimoy's character was central to the plot, and yet he was on screen, what, maybe a tenth of the movie? I mean, it wasn't that long. No, huh? That was perfect. Incredibly well done. I thought it was great. I thought he fit in perfectly. And, and uh, honestly, having grown up, and I'd hear that Leonard Nimoy uh, wanted to distance himself from the character yeah, Spock. You yeah. know, he wrote that book, I'm Not Spock. <laughs> and, you know, at least the rumors were that he would only be in The Wrath of Khan if his character died. And then, you know, he only did Star Trek Three because they let him direct it. That was, you know, at least that was popular conception of it. But it's pretty clear now that he's embraced the character and he enjoys being part of the whole Star Trek universe. I wonder if he might even be in uh, one of the sequels now. One of the nitpicks I had with the movie was it just seemed entirely too coincidental to me that Kirk would get ejected from the ship. He would land on a planet. Uh, he would encounter you know these monsters there, and it would just happen to be the same planet that Spock has landed on, and they would just happen to find each other without really trying to. It just seemed you know, too coincidental to me. Yeah, and we're actually going to expound on that inside of our negatives list here during this review, and be sure to look for that soon. Two guys talking. The balls to destroy Vulcan. Uh, can I have someone measure the balls of the people that said, hey, let's blow up Vulcan, because they're freaking huge. Would have been better if they blow up Earth, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Paul and I talked about this during a preamble uh, early last week when we were trying to figure out the date we are going to record. Th this just brings to life so many different things that really provide gravity to a, a great many things. The first of which that I think comes up and strikes everyone really, really hard is that you're essentially equating the Vulcans to the peril of the Jews, except that, it, of course, instead of six million, there's now six billion. And there are about 10,000 left, according to older Spock. I love that tie. The uh, second thing I like is just, okay, um, I time to brainstorm, um, let's blow up Vulcan. And that that's taken seriously and then implemented inside of a major motion picture that's built on top of 40 years of fandom. I love that. Well, and to take the flip side of that, I mean, I, I liked it, but I wasn't nearly as impacted by it as you were in the sense that if you really think of it, we've had lots of characters from Vulcan in the series and the movies but how much has the government of Vulcan really participated in the storylines of the major canon? A well, little bit in the next generation and whatnot. Well, no, not, but, no. You know. they, they are central to us becoming not just a piece of the Federation, but spawning into something totally different than what we were previously. If, if you watched the series Enterprise, the Vulcans were uh, pivotal in a lot of the storylines there, and they had a, a good part of one season was actually on Vulcan. Oh, no, no, I, I mean actually later, though. In other words, at the point in, in history, in the canon, that Vulcan is blown up, is there anything that we've seen in the canon, in the original canon, from that point forward, that was important enough that is now not going to happen, that that really shakes things up story-wise? And I can't really think of a whole lot. I guess the whole I, unification storyline with well, Romulus and, the, and stuff. The but, six billion people thing. But, but I guess the biggest part of that is, uh, you know, you, you do have a lot of influence on the series, is the different series, uh, by Vulcan characters. And they always talk about the Vulcan Science Academy and things like that. But there's no reason to believe that that couldn't go on with whatever you said, 10,000 Vulcans. Yeah, uh, well I really said. thought that, that them just blowing up the planet... Actually, I, I kept thinking, okay, we're watching a movie that has a whole time travel theme to it. Somehow they're going to go back and undo this destruction. Yeah, I was waiting for Never the slingshot that. around and the sun maneuver. Cheat if they had. Uh, and I really thought that this was J.J. Abrams and his staff of writers 
coming out and saying everything you know about the other series that have been on before, uh, forget that because there's nothing that we won't do. Yeah, I, uh, again, just total vibrato here, and I really, uh, of the things that struck me, that struck me the most. Two guys talking. New phasers, transporters, and engine room. Oh, man. I looked over at Tony, and I, I must have had a smile that was around the back of my head at this point. But when they started firing off the phasers, and the phasers actually have some sort of motor in them that stuff moves and there's an actual looks like little tiny bolt action kicking out the back and the impact of the bolts coming out of the phaser i i needed some new pants it was just hardcore it was the really funny good. thing is uh, after i got home and uh, after i saw the movie i looked up on imdb and i always read the trivia that was on there after i watch a movie and one of the items there was that they actually reshot that scene originally it was going to be basically they show up without much difficulty and there was going to be like some minor fist fight and a few other things and they decided to add in the gun battle instead to make it more exciting oh, wow. which obviously 100% makes oh, yeah. sense yeah. if we going didn't have phasers the, in yeah. Star Trek that would have been yeah. I'm going to be beaming you into the in the into the cargo bay where there's nobody and they show up and it's everybody's got a gun and everybody's looking at them they just have to be pointing at that one spot yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean it was, it was silly but it, it worked well it was I liked awesome it. it was good but the other thing about the, uh, the phasers they totally upgraded the, the special effect yeah. on that. Because oh, yeah. if you remember the original series, they'd hold up the phaser, and then I guess they would draw in on the film like <laughs> a light that came from it, just a beam of light, and it would be a solid beam that would just continuously fire until they released the bolt, the trigger. <laughs> Whereas on this, it, it was more like uh, you know, like a shot that would come out. Yeah. Uh, again, just stellar. When we look at the transport effects, the transporter effects are easily some of the best I've ever seen. Uh, I mean, I, I, I try and go back and remember when I first saw, like, Next Generation throwing through, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars of budget into transporter effects. And, I mean, it, all of it pales in comparison because this, the, it kind of, it's like a tornado. It's like a mini tornado over every appendage and body part of somebody, over all of them at the same time. The, the one that strikes me the most is uh, Spock and Spock's ancient ancestors slash smart people from Vulcan being beamed out. You, when this comes out on DVD and Blu-ray, I want to see that scene over and over and over again because it just it was really that good. Well, one thing I thought was interesting too was for starters, the new effect was definitely it was not unlike any of the original ones. I mean, it wasn't something totally different, and that uh, I liked. I think it was, uh, but I, I do I remember really reading that effectively the original shot of the original series beaming effect was they basically took glitter in a, like a glass of water, yeah, stirred it up, it and videotaped it, or yeah. recorded it on film, obviously. Obviously, they're not going to do that in the film. Yeah. But it's amazing how long what is basically an incredibly low-budget, silly effect stayed around, because even in the next yeah. generation, okay, they upgraded the effect, but it was still looked like glitter and water at the end of the yeah. day. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, the new effect well, in my life. 40 years to improve on it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that and also the, the engine room gives you a, a totally stark different feel than anything we've ever seen inside of star trek several people that i talked to said it looked like a brewery which I, okay i, I can't see that which that, is kind of appropriate for scotty being in there yeah. i suppose uh, I, I didn't necessarily have a problem with that so much is that it really didn't look anything like the rest of the ship at all regardless of whether <laughs> it looks like what the original series was because let's face it anybody who complains that it didn't look like the original series engine room uh, sorry you should shut up because the original series engine room was basically like 15 foot corridor with a railing and one panel on the wall <laughs> so it wasn't anything at all that you'd want to emulate and that i didn't have a problem with that but 
the fact that it really doesn't it doesn't look like an engine room for starters and second it looks like nothing at all like the rest of the design of the ship is a little out of place it almost felt like okay now we're gonna go in the sub basement and there's this thing in the corner and that's the engine uh they could have done better and i'm sure we'll probably see a revamped look in the next film but we'll see i think they really highlighted the engine room all that much and i think it may have been a directorial choice that they didn't want to waste too much of their budget on on a room that they weren't going to spend much time in because you know they kind of just cut to it and cut out of it pretty quickly yeah i I agree with that and the other thing that i really really liked is okay it's time to eject the core well it wasn't this big giant hourglass thing that was just shoved out the the ass end of the enterprise it was these six or seven pieces of something that were jettisoned I really like that because it's again it's something it's a totally different take on what we're supposed to know. Yeah. I really like that. I, I'm I'm kind of mixed on that. There wasn't enough explanation for me to really pick it apart. But my thought is initially, okay, Kirk's father dying would not change the design of the warp engine. So if it's going to be different, give us a little more dialogue to tell us. Okay, they're only going to uh, eject the housing that the dilithium crystals are in or, or whatever. Maybe they don't inject the whole core now because it's easier to just eject the part of it that matters or whatever. They could have gone into what you know with a little bit more I, peppering I, of knowledge, which I, I kind of throw I, this it's not a the, huge deal, but eh. I throw this into the same category as the photon torpedoes being something completely different than anything we've ever looked at, where it becomes that sort of flat cannon looking thing. That's nothing we've ever seen inside of Star Trek Realm. Right, but and that so doesn't mean we, it wasn't there. But I, I took those things as less less of a continuity change than just an upgrade in special effects. Yeah, yeah. I think it's just a directorial choice to give you something different that still does the job. I, I, I really don't think it's more than that. Because like the torpedoes, for example, you could easily just say, oh, they have small torpedoes and big torpedoes, and we saw the small ones. I mean, that, that, that's nothing. That's, that doesn't take a whole lot of... Uh, right, storyline writing to come up with. Oh, but they're not going to go, hey, Kirk, or uh, Kirk's not going to say something effective. Okay, Chekhov, only launch the little torpedoes. Correct. Well, no. Or it, the low-yield torpedoes It would make sense, though, based on the design of the ship, the ones that are more like the, the flak type would spread out. They'd do more damage on a ship that doesn't have a whole lot of surface area. You could explain it away a hundred ways in, in the Tony Lovasco world of nitpicks, and then the, and the photon <laughs> torpedoes still work. Warp core, I'm not so sure. Two guys talking. The official handoff meaning something. We alluded to this when we talked about Spock and uh, Leonard Nimoy appearing inside the movie, but truly the handoff from a previous generation, like what was supposed to happen inside of generations to the next generation crew, was achieved here 100%. You have an absolute handoff from an older version of the new young guy that we've seen. And just masterfully done. Yeah, I, I really just enjoyed the whole Spock uh, aspect of it. And I even, even thought that the, at first I had been a little bit critical of the idea that he didn't come along with Kirk yeah, to, yeah, the, yeah. to the Enterprise thinking, you know, wouldn't his intelligence and his background be helpful to them? But, you know, I, I kind of accept that as him knowing that the friendship between Kirk and Spock had to develop naturally had to as blossom, opposed right. to being forced by his telling them, hey, you guys are supposed to be friends, uh, and, and that he had the confidence that they were going to resolve this. Yeah. What, what I love about Spock's character, older Spock's character in this is that he essentially is the, the match for the relationship between young Kirk and young Spock. It's, we're going to talk about hearkenings here in just a few minutes, but that's the one that I think is really impressed upon in that final scene between old Spock and new Spock. Young Spock's and Kirk's relationship is something that must happen. It's not something that 
could happen. It's something that must happen, and Spock, older Spock knows that. And I, I like the whole aspect of when the mining ship was destroyed and the uh, emergency was over, old Spock didn't just disappear to the future. Right. He stayed there, <laughs> and he became a part of this new timeline. Two guys talking. Harkenings. There are so many in here. The one that strikes me uh, probably as much as any hearkening can strike you here inside of this movie review is when you see young Kirk and young Spock on the transporter beam ready to beam down and there's just this tiny little waft. Right. That you can just barely (laughs) hear. It's It's, it's not nearly prevalent. It's super subtle and it was needed. But that's all that it was needed. Nothing else had to be anywhere near same Star Trek feel, and it would have been perfect. Hold, it was hold great. On. You mean you didn't want to see a three and a half minute scene, shuttlecraft scene with the original uh, Enterprise music driving, going through, like driving, we saw right? in the motion picture? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> like the most painful scene in a movie that I wanted to see ever. And that's like that was that's one of the coolest soundtracks ever. But three and a half minutes is hard, even with that theme song. I'm sorry. Wait. The search for Spock. Yeah, yeah. Except that it, it moved at least. I mean, it's like okay, here comes another crescendo as we cross over well, another <laughs> nacelle piece. Watch we're we're as totally we go. off topic, but it was literally where <laughs> the, the shuttlecraft like made like two laps around the Enterprise, and then like went over the nacelle and went underneath, and it okay, just so we could see different angles. How about <laughs> just go to the shuttle bay? <laughs> it was now on the wrong side of the ship. Yeah. The other things that were. Uh, Totally pulled across here. You have the Kobayashi Maru scene that was, again, yeah, one of my favorites. Awesome. Everything in there, just about every every single mention of anything inside that scene hearkened to something. You've got Sulu pseudo sword fighting with his new ultra ninja snap open sword. Uh, that was excellent. Uh, apparently, the Archer, Admiral Archer, is referred to somewhere in the film. And then you apparently have a, a Tribble that's inside of Scotty's not-yet-engine room down on the, the magical planet where Kirk and Spock meet. Yeah, there was a whole lot of references. There's a lot more than we won't list. Uh, I liked almost all of them. Uh, I made a comment after we left the theater that there was almost a little bit, weighted on a little bit too thick. Not Not enough that it was distracting, but enough that it, they walked that line. Uh, the only one I think that I could have done without was... Uh, when Kirk uh, meets Spock and Kirk says, who are you? And Spock responds with, I have been and always shall be your friend. <laughs> okay, that was a little bit forced. But other than that, I, I really did appreciate the nods that they did to not only the original series, but the movies as well. That line, although I agree with you, was a little forced. I, I still felt it played well because it so goes to like the, the whole character of Spock and what's important to him and and how important those the times that he said that in the original movies were to him and to his character that he carried them through to this movie and creates you know kind of a bridge to those movies with that line yeah I mean what did you want him to say something like one damn minute admiral (laughs) what what exactly did you want him to say like I'm Spock maybe I mean I know he gets to that but I I don't know it, it was it was very much a okay no one would ever say that in this situation I mean it was it was silly but what I what I did I did like and then just to throw this through as a positive I did like uh, the the scene at the end of the movie where older Spock is talking to younger Spock and <laughs> you know he, he kind of you know he kind of almost raises up his hand and then he can he stops and well I'll dispense with my customary greeting because it might sound self-serving and just wish you good luck that was great I love that <laughs> <laughs> that was awesome and I gotta tell you no matter how this review turns out Tony I have been 
and always shall be your friend. Gone! <laughs>positive there's always even in a movie like star trek 2009 by jj abrams the bad two guys talking every movie's gonna have a spot where they don't quite keep muster i myself cannot think of many in this one but we had a few that came up the flagship of starfleet being run by children yeah, I really had a little bit of a problem with the whole chain of command and uh, softly. <laughs> or lack thereof. Yeah, well, the fact, I mean, you had Captain Christopher Pike, who uh, I, I would guess he was 40-ish, 42, 43, maybe somewhere in that range, uh, which would make sense that he would achieve the, the level of captain and be there in charge of the ship, and maybe even that he would be such a good captain that they would give him the flagship, give him command of the flagship. But you would think that the command crew in the flagship would have a few experienced officers in it. Uh, you know, you had Kirk, who technically wasn't even supposed to be on the mission, who, who somehow miraculously gets named first officer. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you could understand Spock being there, but every other character that they highlighted was somebody who was basically coming right out of Starfleet. Uh, is that their entire force of their military? Does it, does you know, people that are just coming out, or is there anybody who, you know, actually has some experience? You know, the the younger children aspect, you know, children is a bad word, of course, but the younger people, uh, I, I, that was one of my nitpicks initially as well, until I thought, well, look at the average age of people in our military, and okay, mid-20s, yeah, that works. I mean, I, I don't have a huge problem with that. Now, granted, they're not, you know, commanding starships, uh, <laughs> or, or even his first officer. However, as you pointed out, it is completely and inescapably unforgivable that the cadet that that hasn't graduated yet because of his cheating sneaks aboard the ship illegally, <laughs> runs upon the bridge, disrupts the crew, and happens to shout out something that, well, it happened to be true. So you know what will make you first officer? What? No! <laughs> no not only did that never happen, but that's just silly. Okay, but, even if it was just to shut him up and he wasn't really going to give him first officer, he just told him that so he would come along on the death mission... All right, fine. Maybe that was it. <laughs> the death mission. And, but after he saves the day, he literally jumps from cadet to captain. That's what, five ranks that he's just totally skipping just because he saves the day once? Okay, that's good, but where's the motivation to save the day the next time? Are they going to make him vice admiral of the fleet? <laughs> I, I didn't hate it, but I would have liked some kind of... I don't even know if they could have provided an explanation for that, but... Yeah, I, I would imagine, you know, uh, you had Pike as the captain, you had Spock as the first officer. There had to be a second officer. There had to be somebody who held that position before Kirk uh, stowed uh, across the sh uh, onto the ship. He might have been but killed with the doctor, I suppose. I mean, uh, that, that's kind of where I throw all of that. While I know it, it's kind of like uh, you know the conversations you had either in high school or when you were younger of boy, I wonder. Let's say the president, the vice president, chief of staff, and blah 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 <laughs> are all flying in the same airplane, and the airplane crashes. Who's in charge? And then the secretary of education becomes president. Oh wait, that's Battlefield Galactica. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> Is that how, how many people have to get killed in that crash before the guy who stowed away becomes captain? Right. <laughs> and quite the answer is everyone has to die. <laughs> Chekhov would be captain before Jim Kirk. Two guys talking. The status of Nero. I'd like to lead off this point by saying that I am usually impressed by Eric Bana. And I liked Eric Bana in this role. The problem is that Eric Bana's role, Nero, in this film exemplifies why we have seen, but will probably never see, a villain better than Khan. 
I, I really do believe that because Khan and many other villains make Eric Bana look very paper thin in this. Yeah, I, I didn't hate uh, the Nero's role at all. I just wasn't buying his rage. His whole, okay, his family's dead, so he's going to you know kill everyone randomly, and hopefully he'll get to Spock one day because it was Spock's fault. Okay, that's fine. But I don't know if it was just the portrayal or they didn't really adequately explain it, but there was about 800 things he could have done that would have made a whole lot more sense. Start, start off with uh, he's gone back in time. How about telling someone that his planet's going to be destroyed so that his family can survive? Well, he doesn't even try that. The blind rage where he kills, you know, destroys eight starships, including the one that Kirk's father's on. Okay, makes sense. And then he hangs around for 25 years doing nothing and not being a nefarious evil guy just that he can kill Spock. Okay, wouldn't he be off doing other acts of revenge in that time period? Well, we don't hear from that. Really, I'm going to throw this on, sadly, Herc Bana here. The, the, the portrayal of the character was exactly the same from the moment we saw him till the end. Not as if he'd lived 25 years in squalor while he plots his revenge or uh, constantly on the run from the good guys while he murders people. It felt like... 10 minutes went by from him, for him, not 25 years, and that I didn't care for. Performance was totally over the top. I think it was, it was better served that his screen time was somewhat limited. I mean, he was probably only on, on screen maybe five or six minutes in the movie, and I think that was an advantage because I think if he had gotten more screen time, uh, the over-the-top portrayal would have even come out even more. Yeah, I agree with that. Two guys talking. Oh, wait a minute here. I, I, I stated earlier, and I'm not going to change this position, that I did like how they dealt with the time travel storyline in regards to what is the reboot and all of that. On the other hand, they definitely they, 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 they glossed over a lot of the traditional time travel stuff, mostly because, well, they didn't want to do another time travel film because they've done that so many times in Star Trek, and I get that. And it's two hours and nine minutes. Right. Uh, however, we have little unanswered questions here that really they could have answered somehow. For example, original Spock, Leonard Nimoy Spock, doesn't disappear when his timeline has been altered, meaning, okay, we have alternate timelines from different universes, as they, they make a point of saying. Well, does that mean that now Spock can then just open a wormhole and go back to his original timeline and everything's the same, and now this reboot doesn't matter because we'll just go back to that next movie? Well, no. The, the little little things we talked about with Nero and why he doesn't try to save the planet, they really don't go into time travel at all other than it's the catalyst that sparks the story. I didn't care I guess that. you could explain that away a little bit by saying uh, that Spock was actually in whatever that wormhole was that brought them back in time when the timeline was being changed and somehow that shielded him from the change. Yeah, I think that's 100% fair. I, but, uh, a line of dialogue explaining that would have gone a long way. And see, way. I think that goes back to being inside the ship that is the time travel ship is going to provide some sort of bubble. And when you interact with a bunch of stuff that we have no idea how it operates, you have no idea how a black hole operates. There's some fundamental physics that are involved that we think happens. But there's probably some magical stuff when you roll in the time travel ship, when you roll in, there are three different people that are actually waiting for something to happen but still yet interacting with the holes. All of that stuff is such an X factor that you, you've got to just ride the surfboard. Yeah, I, I was actually waiting at the end of this movie where the Enterprise is being tugged into the black hole. I was waiting for them to not make it out, go through, and then reemerge in the future time, the 24th century, original timeline where Spock came from. And now, now the future movies are going to be alternate timeline, original cast, 
except for a hundred years after they their characters all died, and now I'm happy we interject. didn't. See that. I'm glad we didn't either. I'm really. But happy they could have done it incredibly easily, and it would have worked with the plot. It wouldn't have worked in the future, but <laughs> yeah, I, I think it would have been a real bad sequel. Yeah. Okay. Two guys talking. The mining ship. I totally like the concept of Nero being just an ordinary guy, blue-collar worker working in a mining colony, and bad stuff happens to his family, so he gets mad. That I don't mind, except for they didn't explore it very well. I didn't care for the ship. Not only was it not terribly well-designed, but we're basically to believe that a random ship that's designed to drill holes in things has massive armaments and is able to destroy, what, eight Federation ships, even if they are taken off guard, with no effort whatsoever. Really, I think my most biggest complaint, this would have been a perfect opportunity to showcase the Romulan Warbird that we haven't really seen in the movies all that much at all. That would have been great to see that, whether it be the classic original series style or the next generation style, doesn't matter. I would have rather had Nero been a military guy that was off doing maneuvers when his family was killed. And I think it would have made a lot of that a lot clearer and a lot easier to follow. I, I had mixed feelings about the ship because I thought it was really, really menacing looking and, and and intimidating. I mean, it looked like something that could destroy things. And I also liked the fact that it looked very alien. It didn't it didn't follow the structure of, you know, what, what a traditional UFO looks like in, in the stories that we've heard about and read and seen in the movies. Yeah. Uh, the problem is, it, you know, like Tony says, it doesn't make sense that that would just be a, a typical mining ship either. Well, I really liked the ship. I thought the design of the ship, because it was so immense, it was like this big prickly hand that was emerging from each of the each of the black holes each time i thought that that was stellar i also liked that you never really knew where the bridge was on it you didn't know where to shoot at i guess yeah. that makes some sense uh, but the, the the thing about armament is that you have to remember that while we think he's been sitting there for 25 years who knows where the hell he's been well, we're yeah. all whining about he could have went back in time. Well, what if he went forward in time? And he went and got some goony armament. And he just went back again? And he brought uh, it back I and said, oh, look, the Starfleet, and now you're done. Yeah, I can see that. So H- how about the inside of the ship? Was anyone else a little annoyed by the, and now we're going to have a ledge with no railing that goes down 30,000 feet just so that some guy can fall <laughs> off of it? And, and no one would design a ship like that, even if it was just a mining ship. What I did, Guys walking across this, you know, just, okay, all right, it's silly, fine. I can't think of an idea. Ba- basically, it. it was, let's design a ship that makes a good set for a fight scene is what that was. <laughs> and considering they did such a good job designing most of the Enterprise and the Kelvin, it just seemed kind of, and now we're going to do this. And... Uh, I don't know. I just didn't have the, the focus that oh, the other sets had. I'll give you that. The the, the, the throne with Nero, mm, okay, I mean, that's appropriate because of his name. I can deal with that. That he is in charge of everything and he's sitting on the throne. I get all that fine. I, I had a problem with kind of the, the lackeys, you know, okay. Yeah, they have no the agenda. Gone, Why are they? <laughs> so we're all going to rage because all of our families are right. dead. Just a tiny bit weak, yeah. but not nearly as weak as what S- I... Sweep the floors for 25 years while Captain gets ready for the revenge. <laughs> <laughs> we got meal packs for 25 years. Let's go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so we come to the part of the feature film review of Star Trek 2009 where we rate this movie. Paul, I'm going to lead off with you being obviously the eldest Star Trek fan. What did you think of Star Trek 2009 by J.J. Abrams? Uh, I loved it. I really, really enjoyed it. I mean, one of the things we just talked about, I thought the casting was excellent. There were a couple of plot holes in the story, but nothing big enough to really disturb my enjoyment of it. There was enough going back to the old series to make me smile and and see things that I enjoyed, but there was nothing in there that, that became so anchored to the original series 
that I don't think somebody like my wife, who isn't a Star Trek fan, thinks she could come in and sit down and watch it because she does like action movies, uh, and I think she would enjoy it. I, I think it had so much going for it, and it really makes me look forward to the sequel, if and when, you know, not if, when they make it. I'm going to give this movie eight and a half. In deference to uh, your Terminator and your 24 reviews, I'm going to give it nine stars. There you go. Very nice. Thank ah, you very much. you bowed to the Mike Wilkerson pressure. <laughs> <laughs> And so we go to Tony, who is our youngest member of the Two Guys Talking Now, Three Guys Talking podcast for this review. Tony, what did you think of Star Trek 2009? You know, it's tough. I, I, on one hand... It's not tough. You know, it is. And here's why. The, Tony, this, it, was it, the, this was the easiest movie review you'll ever have. You know why? Because when we exited, you said nothing. I, I, that's my point. Zero. I, uh, let me finish my comment. My, my comment is this. If I am going to <laughs> coldly and objectively review the plot of this movie and, and basically the story and everything else... You know what? I have to give it probably six and a half, seven. Not nothing great. It Thanks was, for listening it to was, the two guys it talking. It was good enough. Hold on. It was good enough, but nothing <laughs> spectacular. If I'm going to write the, my enjoyment of the movie and how it is as a whole and replay value, excitement after I saw it, what I tell people when I meet them on the street, and I said, hey, just a Star Trek. This is what I thought. I, it's going to be up there. It's going to be eight and a half, nine, maybe a little bit higher. I, I'm going to settle for nine because uh, Paul picked nine as well. It, it's definitely, it, it's hard to come up with concrete integers here since you love the whole numbers. But yeah, it, it, total enjoyment wise, it was a great film. I can get past all the stupid nitpicks because I enjoyed it. And that's what movies are supposed to do is they're supposed to entertain you. It, it doesn't necessarily have to hold up on some scale uh, yeah. um, that we come up with here on the show. So yeah. it was great. I have been disappointed by so many movies in the last probably five or six maybe even eight years where I've seen so few movies that actually provide real satisfaction for me. Uh, it may have been because I had zero expectations going in knowing really nothing about any of the people that are in it except for maybe Zach Kinto. But from the onset of this film, uh, in fact, probably before the film even began, when it started having trailers that had nothing to do with original Star Trek, no same music, you knew that the starship looked kind of the same. They had things that they called phasers, and they had warp drive and a Kirk and a Spock and a Scotty and all of them. This movie provided me with more satisfaction than I've felt in years at the movie theater. When I can get in and I can sit down, and I've already got that goofy, boy, I'm really liking this grin, and I have open smiles concurrently throughout the film as I'm nodding away at the content, I give this film a nine as well. It's one of the best movies I've seen in a very long time. And so the final thing we do is we ask you, the audience, what you thought of J.J. Abrams' Star Trek 2009. Let us know what you think by accessing our website at twoguystalking.com. That's the number two, guystalking.com. Click on the contact button on the top right-hand side and let us know what you thought of this feature film. And so we come to the end of yet another feature film review from Two Guys Talking. I'm Mike Wilkerson, one of your hosts. I'm Tony Lovasco, another host. I'm Paul Spataro. Live long and prosper, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Two Guys Talking Podcast. Have you taken the time to follow our efforts inside of social media? Be sure to visit twoguystalking.com. That's the number two, guystalking.com. And be sure to like and follow us on all of your favorite social media networks. Remember, we're always interested in what you have to say. Send your feedback about this podcast to us over at twoguystalking.com. That's the number, twoguystalking.com. 
There you'll find thousands of hours of podcasts across a variety of topics, skill sets, and legacies. Have you thought about starting your own podcast? Start your podcast adventure at twoguystalking.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. this out there as a non-recorded question mm-hmm. if they had blown up earth would that have sucked or not what do you think yeah instead i mean yeah i think it would have been just too much of a downer for everybody yeah i think, I think it would have taken the wind out of everybody because while spock is one of the most popular characters of all time inside of star trek as is the race the vulcans I, it almost makes them more endearing that they now have to survive from ten thousand instead of six billion plus. But I mean, if they, if they went the Battlestar Galactical route of destroying Earth and Rag now... Ragtag bunch of people. And now Starfleet is now what the remaining ships. I mean, basically it would be the Battlestar Galactica storyline. I could see that working, but you're right. It would be definitely making a dark movie rather than the lighthearted fun movie this was. So. You've got you to remember Gene Roddenberry's vision is 
of a not a perfect future, but a, a better future. <laughs> not a post-apocalyptic one. <laughs> yeah, good point. Good point. Good. Insert the tone. Record, but mm-hmm. I, I think it almost might have been better if there wasn't a villain. If maybe the thing that kills Kirk's father was a spatial anomaly. No, no. You know, I'm totally not a fan of that. Really? They, nope. they could have done a basically a movie like they did with Motion Picture or Voyage Home. That's why they didn't do know. it. Because they would have did in the Motion Picture. No, that's true. I mean, no. not that I want another Motion Picture, but no. You know. Even after we found, even to after create Khan ever since that movie true, came out. True. Yeah. Uh, I remember when uh, when they were getting ready to produce Nemesis, and they hired the screenwriter from Gladiator to do it, and they said his whole function was to try and create a villain that's going to be just as dynamic as Khan. Epic fail on that. I was going to say. Total, just worthless. Mike Wilkerson is a more epic villain than goofy, (laughs) pseudo-not-looks-at-all-like-Patrick-Stewart-villain-clone thing, whatever that That Quinzon crap was. I, I, I even like that movie. Oh, man, that's generous. You know what, though? You, uh, you are a hardcore fan if you like Nemesis. No, <laughs> listening to Paul's discussion about Nemesis, whenever we do the Nemesis review, and we will do the rest oh. of the Star Treks, when we do that, we need to have Paul back because some, yeah. of, his, some of his stuff on it, I, really, I, I didn't do 180 on it, but I totally see his viewpoint how it could be viewed positive. The problem is that a gajillion Americans thought that it sucked also. Well, there's, there's, so a, into the there's toilet a laundry it goes. list of good stuff in that movie. <clears throat> and then there's a, a list, short one. Then there's a list that goes to the moon of the crap. So <laughs> <laughs> it's just moving on. Okay, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, here we go. Good, insert the tone. Two guys talking. 